0: Well, today's message is going to be an introduction or kind of a general overview of what I feel is the main theme of the Sermon on the Mount, and then, Lord willing, in the weeks to come, we'll begin going through the sermon verse by verse. And I don't know how quickly of a pace we'll go through it. Um, I've already started working on next week's message, and I was intending to cover a couple of the Beatitudes uh, in one message, and I'm realizing there's too much there. So (laughs) we may just be covering, at least next week, just one of the Beatitudes. But today I'll be addressing, Lord willing, four general questions. And the first is, who is the sermon spoken to? Second, what is the sermon about? Third, how should we apply the sermon? And then fourth, is the sermon practical? So those are the four questions that I hope to address here this morning. But before we begin that, I want to um, just briefly give an overview of Matthew's gospel up to the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and Matthew, of course, is the first gospel recorded in the New Testament, um, although it doesn't seem in reading some uh, about the, the Gospels, it doesn't seem as though Matthew's is the earliest written gospel, but it is the first one recorded here in the New Testament. And uh, Matthew begins, obviously chapter one with the genealogy of Jesus. And then in um, the second half of chapter 1 and into chapter 2, uh, it goes over the uh, birth of Jesus and his early life as a child. And then um, chapter 3 introduces us to John the Baptist and his ministry. And then the cha- chapter 3 ends with uh, John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. And then in chapter 4, we have the account of Jesus being tempted by the devil. And then in uh, verse 12 there of chapter 4 is kind of our introduction to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And then, of course, the Sermon on the Mount begins in chapter 5 and goes to the end of chapter 7. So... Roughly, it seems right to say this, the timeline for the Sermon on the Mount would be very early in Jesus' ministry. And again, although the order of the Gospels in the New Testament is not inspired, um, in the sense of which one you read first isn't right or wrong. Um, nonetheless, um, because Matthew's Gospel is the first one recorded, if a person were Having never read the New Testament, were to begin at the beginning and read through, this would be the first recorded teaching, uh, extended recorded teaching of Jesus, uh, here in the Sermon on the Mount. There's a you know there's a little bit that he says in chapter uh, at the end of chapter three and in chapter four, but really this is the first time that he really begins to uh, teach uh, in the Gospels here in the Sermon on the Mount, and what an introduction to his teaching it is. Well, so the first question, who was the sermon spoken to? And to answer that, we really need to begin in chapter 4 uh, to see kind of the flow. So I'm going to begin reading in uh, at the end of chapter 4 here, verse 24. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So I'm going to stop right there. So from these verses, we can clearly see that the immediate audience for the Sermon on the Mount was the disciples. Um, says that his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and began to teach them began to teach the disciples. But then if we jump to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7, verse 28, uh, we'll see that there was a larger audience present than just the disciples. So let me just read these last two verses from chapter 7. It says, When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So what seems to be the setting is that these crowds were following him, as we saw there in chapter 4, and Jesus went up onto this mountain or hill and sat down to teach. And I was thinking about this idea of sitting down. This posture of sitting down is different than what we are accustomed to whenever someone uh, in our day... um, is going to teach. Typically, we think of standing up in a pulpit like this or on a a stage and giving a presentation and the audience is in a seated position. But oftentimes, in Bible times, the teacher was, it was just the opposite. The teacher was in a seated position and the audience was gathered around. And so here we have Jesus taking his seat and the disciples came to listen to him. And it seems as though the crowd of people were also there. So in my mind, I kind of think of it as Jesus is sitting, I don't know, on a stool, on a rock maybe, and the disciples come to hear him right around him, and then behind the disciples is this crowd of people gathering around to hear Jesus uh, teach. And obviously, I have no scripture to back up those details as far as how it might have looked, but... Um, To me, that seems like a plausible description. We know the disciples were present, and we know that there was a crowd of people around as well. Now, obviously, in a large crowd of people, there's going to be a mix of some believing and some lost. And even among the disciples, this was the case. You have Judas, who's a false believer, mixed in there with the disciples, However, I think we can confidently say that Jesus is addressing this teaching in the Sermon on the Mount to believers, specifically to believers. And one place that that is particularly clear is in chapter 5, verse 13, where Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. So clearly Jesus is speaking to and about Christians here. Now, I don't want to give the impression that the Sermon on the Mount has no value for an unbeliever. These are the very words of Christ. They have value to all of us. We should all pay attention to what he is saying. However, as I will point out as we go along, it is important to identify who Jesus is addressing, as that will affect how we seek to apply his teaching. And we'll talk about that more here in just a moment. So the sermon was spoken to the disciples and to the crowd of people, but is specifically addressed to believers, to the disciples. So then second question, what is the sermon about? Well, the Sermon on the Mount covers a wide range of topics in the Christian life. And although at a surface level the various topics may not seem to be very connected, um, I think we'll see that there is a common thread or theme throughout the sermon. And I do have some slides here that I'm going to pull up here in just a minute. So Cliff, if you want, I don't know if you've already... Yep, it's on. Okay, good deal. Um... But before we get into the sermon itself, there's a more general theme that I find helpful to identify at the outset. But to see this theme, again, we need to go back, and I want to just touch on a few verses here from chapter 4 and into chapter 5. And I'm just going to kind of jump around. I'll tell you what verses they are. Um, The first is in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then jump ahead to verse 23. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And then uh, chapter 5, verse 3, which we already read. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then jump down to verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, is what I want to highlight here. You know, throughout the Old Testament, the prophets spoke of a coming Messiah who would rule over Israel forever. And this Messiah Jesus is now ushering in a new kingdom, but not a kingdom of this earth with an earthly king um, and deliverance from physical oppression by Rome, but rather it's an, a heavenly kingdom with an eternal king. And the deliverance he promises is not uh, from physical enemies, but from spiritual enemies. And ultimately, deliverance from bondage to sin. So here in this sermon on the mount, Jesus begins to lay out what citizenship in this heavenly kingdom looks like. What are the characteristics of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? And that's what Jesus lays out for us in this sermon. So let me shut the light off here. So, let's see if this works here. Oh, helps if I turn it on. There we go. So, you could say the Sermon on the Mount is about life in the kingdom of heaven. Or, putting it plainly, this sermon is describing the life of a Christian. And so, the, I want you to think about that as we go through this series, is this is kind of an overarching general uh, theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount, life in the kingdom of heaven. But as we begin to examine the sermon a little closer, I want to highlight two other important principles we see in these chapters. And the first is regarding the Beatitudes in chapter 5 here, uh, verses 3 through 12. And why don't we just take a few minutes to read through um, these Beatitudes. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 3 and read down through verse 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this first principle that I want to bring out flows right from the general theme of the characteristic of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and that is this. The Beatitudes are descriptions of the character of a Christian. So I have that off to the side there. The Beatitudes are descriptions of the character of a Christian. The Beatitudes are not a list of rules we must keep in order to be a Christian. Rather, They are a list of characteristics that are present in every true believer. And that is very important for us to understand. It's an important distinction. Um, And, of course, we'll see that, I think, as we go through these uh, verse by verse in the coming weeks. There are certain characteristics of every true Christian, but we don't become a Christian by exhibiting those characteristics. I want to differentiate. I want to separate that in our minds. There are, there are characteristics that are true in every Christian. But that is not the way that one is saved. By just trying to exercise those things. There are certain characteristics of physical life. Think about that. A beating heart. Lungs that are breathing. You could probably add some other things to that. Those are evidences of physical life, but you don't become alive because of those characteristics. Because you are alive, you will have those characteristics of life. Or, to put it another way, fruit doesn't produce life, but life produces fruit, And if fruit is the result of life, how does a person get life? How do we get life? Thought of this verse from John 3, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So the new birth is essential. Life is given to us by God. We must be born again. And the evidences of being born again and having a new heart is that we will bear spiritual fruit. And some of the spiritual fruits of being born again are what we see here in the Beatitudes. So again, just to summarize, the Beatitudes are descriptions of the character of a Christian and not just a list of rules that we need to follow. Well, the second important principle we see in the Sermon on the Mount that I want to highlight is that the life of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven must be a righteous life. And I also have that one on here. The life of a Christian or a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is to be a righteous life. Not merely an external righteousness, but rather an internal righteousness A righteousness of the heart. You know, the Pharisees had the external righteousness down to a T. But their hearts were wicked. You know, Jesus talked about that. Outside, you know, you've cleaned the outside of the cup, but inside you're full of uh, wickedness and evil. And Jesus shows us in this sermon that the righteousness he requires is from within. In other words, the heart must be right. And again, notice in the Beatitudes, it isn't a list of things that you must do, such as read your Bible, pray, fast, go to church, evangelize. There's none of that. Rather, it's a list of characteristics. It is a description of the characteristics that flow from being born again and having a new heart. And the only way that these characteristics can be true of us is if we have been given a new heart. And this internal righteousness that Jesus speaks of doesn't stop here at the Beatitudes. Jesus actually brings this up throughout the rest of the sermon. He continues to point to the heart. And it is there are so many examples of this. I had to just narrow it down. I'm going to look at three briefly here. Just pointing out that what Jesus is getting at is to get beyond just the external facade of righteousness and get to what is going on in the heart. And so for the first one, look at chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus speaking here, he says, "...you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court." So there's an external command. A person can do that, right? They can abstain from murdering. But Jesus takes it a step further and he says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, You good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So what is Jesus doing there? He's going beyond the external righteousness and pointing to what is going on in the heart. There needs to be righteousness there. In other words, don't commit murder, but what causes murder? Anger in the heart. You need to deal with the anger in your heart. Well, another example, uh, uh, skip down to verse 27. Jesus speaking again, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Again, that's an external act, right? But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus points us beyond just the external and points to the very heart. What is going on in the heart? If there's lust within your heart, there's sin. Jesus is pointing to us, or pointing out to us, the necessity of righteousness from the heart. And then one example from chapter 6, chapter 6 verses 5 and 6. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So again, on this, I believe Jesus is pointing us to motives. Notice both are praying. You've got the one in the inner room is praying, and the one on the street corner are praying. Both are doing the action but Jesus is pointing to the motives here. He's pointing to the heart. One is doing it to be seen and noticed by men. But what Jesus is asking and telling us and saying what, what um, stands out to God is that when the motives are right, you're not doing it to be noticed by men. You're doing it because you love God. You want to pray. So it's not a show. It's reality in the heart. So I believe anyway, that these are two and I'm not saying it's the only principles. I mean, we're going to go through the Sermon on the Mount, and there we'll see that there's going to be a lot, a lot in the Sermon on the Mount, but I believe that these are two of the main principles that I want us to grasp: that the Beatitudes are descriptions of the character of a Christian, and that the life of a Christian is to be a righteous life, but not just the external righteousness but a righteousness of the heart. Well, third question, how should we apply the Sermon on the Mount? And this is an important question to consider. And to answer that, we need to remember again who the audience was and what the sermon is about. Otherwise, we can easily misapply what Jesus is teaching here. The Sermon on the Mount is spoken to Christians describing the life of a Christian. And I want to bring out what I believe are three misapplications of the Sermon on the Mount. And as we discuss it, hopefully be able to see what I feel would be a a right application of this sermon. And I do want to stress, not saying that any of us are guilty of all three of these, but it is something to keep in mind, ways that the sermon can be misapplied. So the first misapplication is to take the Sermon on the Mount and try to apply it as a new rule of law for an earthly, physical nation. As we said earlier, you cannot exhibit these characteristics and follow these commands unless you have been born again. It would be ridiculous to expect an unregenerate person to follow the commands here in the sermon. How can you have an internal righteousness, an internal heart righteousness, when a person has a dead and sinful heart? So this is not how the Sermon on the Mount should be applied. You can require externals from a person, but you can never require righteousness from the heart unless a person has been born again and has a new heart. I was thinking about this when Dick was praying earlier um, regarding the unrest in our country right now. I think it is right for there to be physical laws in place to protect the unborn. Absolutely, we need that. That's an external law that our nation needs. But ultimately what we need is something much deeper than that. We need a change of heart in men's lives. Obviously, if men's and women's hearts were changed on this issue, we wouldn't need laws banning abortion because no one would want to have an abortion. But in the meantime, we do need external laws. But we can't take the Sermon on the Mount and try and force that upon a physical nation and say this is now the the law of the land. So to summarize, that misapplication is from trying to take a spiritual law or a spiritual principle and make it into a physical law. Well, a second misapplication is if a person begins to view the Sermon on the Mount as a checklist of new commands to follow. There it is. Viewing it as a checklist of new commands to follow. So instead of hanging, you know, some... Some of you may even have this, uh, hanging in your living room or somewhere in your house, the Ten Commandments on the wall. Now we're going to take the Sermon on the Mount, hang it on the wall, we're going to memorize it, and we're going to follow it religiously. Well, if we approach the Sermon on the Mount from a literal and legalistic standpoint, we will misapply it, and honestly, I believe, we'll miss the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is not a checklist that we must follow. It is a description of the life of a person who has a new heart. The Sermon on the Mount does cover a lot of topics, but it is far from exhaustive. It doesn't cover everything in the Christian life. Jesus is giving us a pattern That we can follow in this area, in the these areas that he addresses here in the Sermon on the Mount, as well as in other areas of our life beyond um, just the specific commands he gives here. Again, the Sermon on the Mount is pointing us to the necessity for righteousness from the heart. If my heart is right, how would God have me to respond in this? or in that situation that I come across in my life. And it's a mistake, and I'm not saying again, not saying any of us fall into this, but just a general caution. It's a mistake to think that we can write a manual for every situation that the Christian might come across in their life. What we need to do is to study what Jesus is teaching us here in this sermon and ask the Holy Spirit to help us to apply righteousness from the heart in every area of our life. Not just the specific examples that we're going to talk about in these chapters, but in every area of our life. Lord, what would righteousness from the heart look like at my place of work or in my home or in my community? Well, the third misapplication is to focus on specific commands without having an understanding of the broader theme. For example, we shouldn't rush to debate whether or not Jesus permits self-defense if we haven't first considered the Beatitudes and the fact that Jesus is pointing us to the necessity of heart righteousness. And I think oftentimes we can get mixed up and it's like, ooh, this looks like a really interesting passage, and you want to jump right into that. But you miss the broader, bigger context of what is being spoken there, and therefore it can lead us to misapply what Jesus is actually teaching. So we need to step back and say, what's the big theme, and what comes first? And what we'll see is the Beatitudes come first. In other words, Jesus is going to describe a Christian to us first, and then going to begin to give commands to that Christian about how their life should look. Only after we have uh, rightly understand the main point can we begin to seek to understand the details. Well, that's all for the slide. so I'm going to go ahead and turn the light back on here. Well, fourth question. Is the Sermon on the Mount practical? Some might say that this sermon is completely unattainable. You know, when you really begin to read and understand what Jesus is requiring of us and telling us, that can be a thought that comes to your mind like, nobody can attain to this. It's impractical because no one can live up to it. In other words, the bar is set so high that no one can reach it. Others might say that the sermon is very practical, and anyone can live up to these standards if they just devote themselves to it. In other words, anyone who sets their mind to being a better person can live up to these standards Jesus sets for us in this sermon. So there, there's two camps that a person might fall in, and I would say both are wrong. And I want to re, uh, read a quote here from, see, this one is from John Stott, Christian Counterculture. It says this, For the standards of the sermon are neither readily attainable by every man, nor totally unattainable by any man. To put them beyond anybody's reach is to ignore the purpose of Christ's sermon. To put them within everybody's reach is to ignore the reality of man's sin. They are attainable, all right, but only by those who have experienced the new birth, which Jesus told Nicodemus was the indispensable condition of seeing and entering God's kingdom. For the righteousness he described in the sermon is an inner righteousness, Although it manifests itself outwardly, invisibly, in words, deeds, and relationships, yet it remains essentially a righteousness of the heart. And then I'm skipping ahead here. He says, a new birth is essential. Only a belief in the necessity and the possibility of a new birth can keep us from reading the Sermon on the Mount with either foolish optimism or hopeless despair. So we don't want to be in either camp. We don't want to think that anyone who just grits their teeth a little bit harder can be a better person. That's a mistake. The new birth is needed. But neither do we want to look at the Sermon on the Mount and say it's hopeless. I I can never do it, so I'm not even going to try. Because that... Um, ignores the fact of what the new birth means. Christ living in you, causing you to bear fruit. So in conclusion, what exhortation can I leave with you today? Because really we haven't even begun to look at this sermon yet. And Lord willing, we will in the coming weeks. But I do want to leave you with this. And I've kind of already touched on it here finishing this quote. So first to the believer, as we study through our Lord's words in the Sermon on the Mount, we will see just how high of a standard of righteousness he has set for us. And it will seem at every turn to be impossible to live up to the standard that he has set forth here. And if we're not careful, it can become overwhelming in discouraging, especially as we see our own weakness and inability. So what do we do as we begin to see the high calling, the high standard, and our own weakness and inability? The first thing, confess your weakness and inability to the Lord. Be honest with him. There is never going to be any help in your life if you're never bringing your need before the Lord and confessing your need to Him. So the first thing, confess. Just be honest with the Lord. Lord, I am weak. Which leads to the second, ask Him for strength and for help from the Holy Spirit to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. This heart righteousness is possible, like we talked about, is possible because of the new birth. As a believer, you have Christ in you. Ask him for help and for strength to be able to bear fruits like what he describes here in the Sermon on the Mount. And then third, finally, realize that you are in a position of blessing not because of your own Righteousness, but because Christ's righteousness has been given to you. And we're going to get into that a little bit next week, but notice at the beginning, just real briefly here, at the beginning of each of these Beatitudes, Jesus starts with, Blessed, blessed are you, blessed are you. In other words, he's pronouncing a blessing at the outset. How can he do that? Because Christ's righteousness has been given to us. We are in a position of blessing. Because of what Jesus has done. And that is encouraging. Because even when we fall short, which we will, we still have perfect righteousness because of Christ. And that perfect righteousness encourages us, yes, but it also enables us, strengthens us to be able to bear more fruit. And so though, that's what I really want to encourage you just in this initial message here as we look at the big themes here. The the righteousness from the heart is what Jesus is pointing to. I just want to encourage you, confess your inability to the Lord and ask him for strength and for help, but also realize that God has already given you righteousness, which helps you then as you seek to um, walk in in, uh, obedience to what the Lord is teaching us here. And then finally, exhortation to the lost recognize that this high standard of righteousness that the Lord requires is completely impossible in your own strength I pray that you will see that even on your best day with your best intentions you still fall way below the standard of what God has called us to you need to be born again you need a new heart. You need Christ to cover your sin. You need Christ to give you his righteousness. And I pray that as you study this, as we go through this Sermon on the Mount, that you'll see that, to summarize it, you need a Savior. That's what you need. So to the unbeliever, don't view this as, I just need to try a little harder. You won't. You won't be able to make it in your own strength. You need A Savior. You need a new heart. Well, amen. That's all that I have for today. Lord willing, next week, I hope to go on and we'll look at verse 3 Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, After that, we'll see. I may be able to tackle a couple at a time. But I I don't want to make these too long to where um, overload of information and we begin to miss anything there. Well, amen. Um, I I encouraged those who were able to to read the Sermon on the Mount and just knowing that I was going to be kind of touching on some big themes that I clearly didn't have time to go through and read the entire thing today. Um, We're going to now begin going verse by verse, so it'll be much shorter, but I think it still can be helpful uh, not to just zoom in so close that we miss the bigger picture of this. So as the Lord leads, you might from time to time want to continue to just look through the uh, the three chapters there, Matthew five, six, and seven, as we're as we're studying through this, and I pray that the Lord will help us all, me included, to begin to see this come to life uh, in its entirety, and not just isolating verses alone. Well, amen. Dad, would you close us in prayer?
1: Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for. The truth of your word thank you for this wonderful sermon that uh, you've presented in the scriptures mm-hmm. and Jesus spoke to these people pray that as uh, we go out of here today and as we walk this week that you would help us to rely on you to confess our sin when we do fail and sin and to rely on you for our strength in these various situations that come into our lives. Help us to respond in a way that would honor you and reflect you Mm -hmm. in our uh, way that we interact with people and community and in our own homes. We want to honor you, Lord. We want there to be an inner sense of following you with all of our heart and a heart devoted to you and not just merely look on the externals of things. We need your help for that, Lord. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would uh, give us that grace, help to walk with you in the manner that uh, you want us to. Thank you for this word this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.